show i'm eric i'm sean and we are the vertiguys we're checking out the dark side of dc we're here to recap and review vertigo comics including the cult hits lucifer hellblazer transmetropolitan and today we are covering transmetropolitan issues two and three uh, does this story arc have a name i don't know that the whole story arc has a name it may have been printed with one but there isn't one here Right. Well, these issues definitely have titles, which we will get to. Indeed. But before we talk about two and three, I think there's another number we should bring up. Welcome to episode 100 of the Vertiguys show. Yeah, that's right. We made it this far. Woo! <laughs> that was a high five, in case you guys couldn't tell. Yeah, I'm excited. It's a celebratory mood here at the Vertiguys show. But as always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. We couldn't have done it without you. We'll talk about some 100th issue formalities once we get past the comic book of the week. Yeah, we got a little something special planned. But for now, do you want to recap Transmetropolitan number one? Sure. Previously on Transmetropolitan, Spider Jerusalem, a rogue journalist, was dragged out of retirement by the need to write a book to fulfill his contract, for which he has to go back to the city. The city is massive and multicultural and transhumanist and is kind of like what would happen if William Gibson had a nightmare after falling asleep watching the Home Shopping Network. <laughs> so Spider has to write a weekly column for his editor, Royce. Spider is a battered idealist who truly believes in the power and importance of the truth. He is also a selfish, violent, irritable, somewhat racist and sexist asshole. Yeah, he's a grumpy bugger. Yeah. And there's a thing going on in the city called the transient movement in which I don't want to spoil too much about what happens in these issues. I'm not sure how much is revealed in what order. It seems like we kind of knew going into these issues that the transients are people who are replacing their DNA with alien DNA and becoming aliens. Yeah, and they've threatened to secede from the city. The leader of the transient movement is Spider's old frenemy, Fred Christ. As a result of which Spider has decided to run his first column on the transients. Yeah, well, they're seceding from the city, but I think also by association the country, and maybe even the human world, because they want to join the alien colony. That's right. So, uh, you referred to Spider Jerusalem as a rogue journalist. Yes. Is that your way of saying that he's a gonzo journalist? Or are you saying that he's more of a rogue journalist than a gonzo journalist? Or is he a rogue journalist and a gonzo journalist both at the same time? <laughs> he's definitely a gonzo journalist. Rogue was more my way of saying that he's a fucking psychopath. <laughs> ah. Ha. <laughs> you caught that. <laughs> Transmetropolitan number two, Down the Dip. Written by Warren Ellis. Pencils by Derek Robertson. Inks by Keith Aiken. Colors and separations by Nathan Eyring. Letters by Clem Robbins. Edited by Stuart Moore, Associate Editor Julie Rottenberg, and special thanks to Michael O'Brien. 
There are many significant Michael O'Briens, including a British member of Parliament, a Canadian author of a series of religious apocalyptic novels, and an American poet known for his dreamlike surrealism. I have no idea which one this refers to. Or it's just a non-famous person who's a friend of, you know, Warren Ellis. Yeah, absolutely possible. I mean, Andre Ricciardi was essentially that, right? Yeah, pretty much. Down the Dip is a song by Scottish new wave band Aztec Camera from their 1983 debut record High Land Hard Rain. <laughs> nice. More of a Bell and Sebastian guy myself. <laughs> Fair enough. This, <laughs> the cover is by Joff Darrow, and it depicts Spider standing in a packed crowd full of aliens and half-aliens wearing ordinary human clothes. They are. He's wearing his black linen suit, as usual, with the backdrop of a broken-down slum. Yeah, I feel like this is a kind of famous transmetropolitan image. It has sort of a, like, a one sane man kind of feel to it. Yeah. Because he's the only one around who's, well, sort of human looking. Although his funny sunglasses and his tattoos and his completely bald head maybe take a little bit away from that. Right. And how the comic treats the transient movement is something we're going to come back to. Yes, we will. By the way, it's worth mentioning that at least the early issues of Transmetropolitan were not released as Vertigo Comics. It's under the Helix imprint right now. Oh, yeah. Helix. <laughs> Which I think didn't exist like five issues later. <laughs> Do you have any idea what the core impetus of Helix was? No, not particularly. Just that, you know, DC wanted another sticker that they could put on comic books to maybe make them sell better. Okay. Vertigo wasn't new and different enough. The more things change. <laughs> so as we open up, Spider has just arrived by taxi at Angel's 8. That's the neighborhood that the transients have effectively commandeered. Yeah, and he's complaining that the cab is expensive. Right. So he comes up to their little barricade, and he says, Hey, I'm looking for Fred Christ. Tell him Spider Jerusalem wants to talk to him. Piss off. Revolutionary intellect really is crackling around here, eh? So then... Spider puts a cigarette out on this guy's eye. Listen up, dickweed. You're playing with serious people here. I am merely a mild-mannered reporter, and see, I have beaten your weak barricade. The filth will be here soon, in riot gear, and your croaky little piss-off will not be scary to them. I just want to point out that piss-off and the filth are both Britishisms. Yeah. The city, the city itself, we're going to find out it's pretty clear is in America. It's unclear to me if Spider just uses British slang or... If that's Ellis's authorial voice coming through, or maybe British slang has just kind of penetrated the U.S. at this point. Well, yeah, and as, as a matter of fact, I think we find out very soon that this part of the city he's going into is Brooklyn Heights. Oh, is it? Yeah. Which, I guess, makes the city New York City, or maybe the city is a huge city that has encompassed New York and several other cities. Yeah, that was kind of always my impression. But yeah, in a couple pages here, somebody directs him to follow Cranberry Street. There is only one Cranberry Street that I am aware of, and it's a famous street in Brooklyn Heights. Okay, good catch. They continue taunting each other as Spider climbs over the barricade. Poor Fred, he's thinking, if all his transient followers are this dumb, and he fears that his column is going to read more like a wake. Yeah, and then we get a full page of him kind of heading into the... Uh, Alien ghetto, as it were. Walking through, Spider notes that everyone's on edge, waiting for the inevitable attack. And that there are no humans around. He's the only one he sees. It's worth mentioning that when we say half-alien, we mean literally split down the middle of the face. 
human on one side, alien on the other. Yeah, some of them seem more symmetrical than that, but... Yeah, everybody seems real freaked out to see him. He finds this woman cradling a baby and asks for directions to Fred Christ. And then allays her fears, I guess. What do you mean? Okay, I'm going. But I tell you something. If I don't find Fred before the riot squads plow through your barricades, then that lovely kid will be laying in your blood tomorrow. Guaranteed. Well, yeah, and that is enough to make her tell him where Fred can be found. Yeah, to the bar that Fred is using as his office. Which is on Cranberry. Right. And when you find him, you tell him this is his baby, too. For fuck's sake, Fred. I swear, you'd stick it in mud if you thought it'd wriggle. Again, I never thought of Spider as English, but... I don't know. Maybe he is. Yeah. Maybe everybody's English. Maybe the city is in England. (laughs) Maybe England took over New York? (laughs) Could be. So, there are a couple of assholes here in Nazi-reminiscent jackboots and armbands. Yeah, they're wearing all black outfits with these red armbands with the three-eyed smiley, which is the icon of both the transient movement and transmetropolitan in the comic. And they are standing guard in front of the building that is Fred's office. I see. You're an authority, are you? Too good to talk to anyone. Now you're all in charge, eh? Well, if that's the way it is... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he beats them up and pulls a gun on them. He is very good at violence. He kicks the door down and shoots up the bar. We don't see anybody get hit, but still, man, that's irresponsible. Yeah, it, well, we, we and we've talked about Spider's casual violence before. It does seem like these are all warning shots. Maybe we're supposed to read him as such a good shot that he can put this many shots into a bar and not hit anybody. Deliberately. Yeah, or maybe we're just supposed to read them all as being pointed in the general direction of the ceiling, although that isn't what it looks like. Right. Yeah, he says something here. When Fred comes out... Runs out mostly naked. I've told you people, it's vital to the cause that I get uninterrupted sex at least every six hours. Fred! Nice to see you again. I've had quite a time finding you. Remember me? He tells Fred to make his goons stay on the floor, because I really do feel like shooting something. Which, again, to me implies that his previous shots were all warning shots. Really? To me it read more like, I don't care if I shoot somebody today. Well, yeah, but if you're saying... If you're saying, I really will shoot somebody, that means you haven't yet. (laughs) That means you're aware that you haven't yet. Yeah. I guess, yeah. And we find out that Fred used to manage bands, which I think is pretty funny. (laughs) Constantine has had run-ins with these kinds of people in the past. Oh, yeah. Sundays are different. You think I could get an interview? For old times' sake, why not? You always gave me good write-ups before. So we come to the interview, which is set up in six grids. We learn that the alien colony in Vilnius has been there ten years. The aliens didn't bring much technology with them, and their culture was a passing fad on Earth. But then humans invented a thing called temping, temporary gene splicing. The aliens sold their genome to tempers. The process could be permanent, but nobody wanted to turn into animals permanently. But becoming another sentient humanoid species? That had a kick to it. Fred further explains that they use the word transient because they're literally in transition. They're between permanent bodies. The one they were born with and the one they intend to have. Spider is not impressed. And more than a little bigoted, maybe. He says, So the aliens are having to peddle their own genetic structure to body perverts in order to survive. Horrible. You're after some kind of concession from Civic Center? 
Why should they bend over for a bunch of pathetic fashion victims? It was the body perverts part that uh. I really didn't like. Okay, yeah. There's a there's a delicate line being done here. And maybe not very delicately. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> because everything that they're saying here could be read as a jab at trans people. Right. At transgender folks. Yeah, specifically. And I don't think that's necessarily a wrong reading. I do think that maybe what Ellis is going for here is more in the sense that, like, in the future, weird body modification would be a thing, and it would have fads. Right. So I'm not 100% on board with the way the comic is, is treating this, but I do think that it's aimed at transhumanism, not transgenderism. Right. It's trying at least to aim at transhumanism, even if its buckshot is going a little wide. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about it more at the end. I don't want to... I don't want to spoil the rest of this arc by diving into my full opinion right away. Sure. Fred says that transients can't get jobs, and that's why they all live in Angels 8, the poorest part of the city, which is where Civic Center wants them. And at that point, Spider questions Fred's motives. Is he just in this for a fresh supply of women? I thought this was going to be a friendly interview, says Fred. It might have been if I hadn't been tripping over assholes just shit full of fake authority all the way here. If I hadn't seen scared, scared people all the way here. If I hadn't seen you all puffed up with the power of the people. If I hadn't seen some poor lady saddled with your kid, terrified out of her mind, sick with resentment. Um, Fred points out that Spider fucked off for five years, and coming back just to deliver a lecture isn't a very good look. This is what's mine, right here, and it needs food and money and space to grow. And you know what it gets? It gets human shit to eat and little fucking white slips instead of cash, and it gets forced to live here, so screw them. I'll give them a hair up their ass. The threat of succession will force them to treat us decently. And as he says this, he throws the glass of water very theatrically, and Spider notes that the whole thing is just so rehearsed. Yeah, now, Fred mentions that they've cut off their own utilities. They have makers, that is to say... Replicators. Right. So all they need is electricity, and the city can't cut it just for them without hitting other neighborhoods. They need the makers, he goes on, to make alien food for them, since they can't digest human food anymore. They'll come and get you, you know. It's an election year for a law and order president. They'll come in and stamp on your bones, Fred. They wouldn't dare. They don't have a good enough excuse. And what if they make one? Spider asks, presciently. <laughs> so now leaving Angel's 8, Spider passes by... A very prominently in the panel displayed strip club called Bazooms. Yeah, and here he spots a couple of lawyers talking to what looks like a down-and-out kid. Lawyers, you can always recognize them by the bad pockets. Lawyers always carry drugs. Ruins the line of their pants. I object to that remark. <laughs> There's one hole in every revolution, large or small, and it's one word long. People. No matter how big the idea they all stand under, people are small and weak and cheap and frightened. It's people that kill every revolution. So Spider is now on his way home. Yeah, he's exhausted both physically and by the knowledge that Civic Center is almost certainly going to crush the transients. And he encounters a two-faced cat. Yeah, so this cat has three eyes, one shared between its two faces. It is hideously ugly, and it's smoking a cigarette. Kind of looks like Ugly John. 
I only get that because I was listening to Explain the X-Men on the way over here. <laughs> I see. I had never heard of this character. That's a character from the X-Men who had three faces. Spider asks, You one of those gengineered, gecko-eating cats I heard about? You are really goddamn ugly, you know that? The cat tries to pounce on Spider, but slams to the ground. Spider pities its inability to pounce and takes her in and feeds her. Handy hint. Cats are a lot scarier when they're not four-fifths dead of starvation. Come on, killer. Let's get you something to eat. And then I think we'll put you around the washing machine a few times. So, inside, Spider complains about the morning talk shows driving out the news. How topical. <laughs> and then he thinks he hears his phone ringing. Even though his phone doesn't work. That was established last issue. He tries to remember where he left the phone and finds it in the toilet. It's lucky the jumpstart pills give me constipation, eh? This is Jerusalem. Speak. Turns out it's Royce, and the phone isn't broken, it just only works to let Royce call Spider. You're dangerous with a phone. Remember what you did when you were alone with the phone in Prague? Remember how many people died? Silly. Oh, also speaking of silly, they have drawn a speech bubble over his head to show that Royce is thinking about pie. Alright. Now I'm thinking about pie. Yeah, I mean, pie tastes pretty good. Royce wants the column now. Spider doesn't enjoy Royce's blustering, so he gets the cat to piss on the phone. And this is perhaps the silliest thing. No one, no matter how good they are at animal husbandry, can get a cat they just met to pee on command and in a spot of their choosing. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> on command and on target. <laughs> if he had put the, you know, put the phone in a litter box, that would be one thing. But it's just, nope, I'll hold this out for you. <laughs> Coming back to the TV news, Spider learns that a firebomb went off at Cranberry and Gyne a few minutes ago. Cranberry was the street he was walking up to leave Angel's 8, the one that Bazooms is on. Yeah, I it struck me Gyne as being a reference to Ed Gyne, the serial killer. Oh, okay. Which maybe is what it was. There's another street called Nixon, so maybe he's just, you know, he's naming all the cross streets after bastards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the cops have their excuse. There won't be a transient left alive by sundown. Spider runs for Angel's 8, even though he doesn't know what he plans to do when he gets there. The point is, I have to be there. And that brings us to Transmetropolitan number 3, Up on the Roof, written by Warren Ellis, pencils by Derek Robertson, inks by Keith Aiken, Ray Crissing, and Dick Giordano. This many inkers, plus the omnipresent Dick Giordano, suggests that the art for this issue is either really late or really ambitious. Color and Separations by Nathan Ehring, Letters by Clem Robbins, Edited by Stuart Moore with Assistant Julie Rottenberg. And again, special thanks to Michael O'Brien. On the cover by Geoff Darrow, Spider is sitting on a roof with his typewriter and some sodas, grinning and lighting a cigarette as flames rise up in the background. Yeah, and the sodas are full of cigarette butts. As a matter of fact, there's about a billion cigarette butts all around him. He's been sitting here for a while. Or he smokes <laughs> or several not. cigarettes at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Or other people smoke here. The art on the first few pages of this issue is really good. Which makes me kind of think maybe that we're talking more about ambition. Right. Than hurry. Yeah, we're going to see some impressive stuff later on. By the way, before we get into the issue, Up on the Roof is a 1962 song written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. It's been covered many times, but was first recorded by the Drifters. So another musical reference title there. So Spider Jerusalem is speeding through traffic. He seems to be driving. Yeah, he had a car in the first issue, although he... That's right, he abandoned it, though. Yeah, that's right, so I guess he's gotten his car back, because the license plate on this one says Spider. 
Maybe he just carries the license plate with him. He's reminiscing about getting a contagious disease and fighting cops in a riot when he was nine years old. That again strikes me as pretty silly. It's pretty silly, but this he is... He used to stomp cops when he was nine years old. <laughs> That's what he says. I mean, maybe he's got kind of a multiple-choice past. Maybe Spider is just a braggart who doesn't hew to the truth terribly carefully, although that runs counter to his one ideal. This might be the first mention of Spider's weird past. Basically, he's been lots of places and had nothing resembling a normal upbringing and has a lot of weird skills because of it. The next couple of pages are Spider driving through the crowd on his way to the riot interspersed with images of the riot happening. Yeah, in the middle panel on the second page, we see his car just about to hit somebody. There's a panel here where the police are banging rhythmically on their riot shields, which say, Submit Now. Yeah, like I said, this art is, it's just incredible, horrible. This is a very well-rendered, very chaotic and ugly scene. Yeah, we're seeing some nasty stuff. There's a large panel of a cop stomping on a guy's head. It would never have happened. The transients were too confused, gutless, and dim to start a real confrontation on their own until some money changed hands. Then we get our title with a double-page spread of the street fighting and the flames surrounding the strip club bazooms. Yeah, this image is so cool. This two-page spread overhead view of the action. Yeah, this is a very cool page. A lot of really detailed infighting between the cops and the transients that we're getting this bird's-eye view of. Spider decides to get to high ground, and he wheedles slash intimidates his way past the bouncer into the strip club. But, but I'm pregnant. Please, for the sake of my unborn child. You don't look pregnant to me. Just missed my first period. It's a shock to us all. The strippers are all gathered, waiting out the fight in the common area of the club. They decide that seeing what Spider is up to will be more entertaining than just sitting there and waiting to die... They dub him Fuckhead and decide to follow the Fuckhead. Right. I want to talk about one of these strippers in particular. Spider is especially bantering with her, and she's a very tall blonde woman with barcodes instead of nipples. I don't know what kind of scanner you need for that. We don't get her name in this issue, but we eventually will. Her name is Chanon Yero. There's a little bit here that bugs me. He climbs up on the strip club stage looking for the stairs to go up, because he's trying to get to the roof in case you hadn't surmised from the title. And he says he hasn't been on stage at a strip club since he was eight. Gross. That is gross, but it's another example of his weird-ass past. If we assume it's true. Right. He could just be making an off-color joke. Or again, he could be nuts. Yeah, he, he's up on the stage speechifying to the strippers, and judging by the low angle, the comic apparently thinks that this is a very cool thing to do. <laughs> Oh, yeah, judging by the low angle and the cigarette in his hand. Yes, the smoke from his cigarette rising to block out the disco ball behind. (laughs) They think he's a bad motherfucker on this page. (laughs) He says that he saw some lawyers talking to transients earlier. They are probably somehow responsible for the firebomb and therefore for the riot. Is Spider starting to strike you as, like, the guy at the party who talks your ear off with self-aggrandizing stories that you're not interested in? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, just making sure. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's something that we're going to have to deal with to varying degrees throughout this series, I think, is that that Spider Jerusalem is the balls, and it's going to tell us that a lot. (laughs) For all of his flaws, I think John Constantine has more genuine, engaging charm. (laughs) 
Right, so he gets up to the roof with strippers in tow. He looks down on the riot. Fred Price, a penis with a promise. You did it this time, Fred. You fucked the entire transient population. Shannon starts to defend Fred, but Spider says he scared Civic Center. Civic Center's like any other dumb animal. Scare it, and it'll die or tear your face off. Yeah, he, he theorizes that they paid off two transients to start the fight that led to the riot. That's the truth of it. That's what this whole thing boils down to. And that's all I can do. Write it down. Yeah, and now that he has a bird's eye view of the action, he is ready to write. He puts in a call to Royce. Yeah, specifically, he vid calls Royce on the typewriter. (laughs) Yeah, and he says he's going to be sending the column out live as he's writing it. That leaves us no time for polishing or rewriting. Screw polish. You're getting this raw, as I see it. You want it or not? Don't screw around with the fuckhead. Trust the fuckhead. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Yeah, trust the fuckhead. I'm doing like a... You know, the sort of, like, put-on movie hero voice that Hunter S. Thompson did. Oh, I don't know how Hunter S. Thompson spoke. Okay. Yeah, he talked like he thought he was a movie hero. Okay. So that's how I have Spider talk. I see, I see. I don't know, I I was about to say that Spider intersperses it with too much vulgarity, but that's what Hunter S. Thompson did, too. Mm. (laughs) So. Yeah, um, I read more about Hunter S. Thompson between the first and the second episodes that we're doing of Transmetropolitan, and... I'm not necessarily saying that that's a good thing, but the... Well, Hunter S. Thompson always described his 300-pound Samoan attorney, Dr. Gonzo. (laughs) And that's like, that's exactly the kind of phraseology that Spider uses. Yeah. Dropping ethnicities into a sentence for color. Right. And that's something that we complained about in the first issue. But, okay, so for better or for worse, that's taken directly from Thompson. Right. As I was saying, journalism is just a gun. It's only got one bullet in it, but if you aim right, that's all you need. Aim right, and you can blow a kneecap off the world. That's him talking to the strippers, but now he narrates more to himself. I could never write unless I was in the city. But when I was here, and I was on, I could blow the kneecaps off anything. Meanwhile, Royce notes that the news feeds aren't getting close enough to see much of the riot, so he contacts a news station, SPKF, with something to sell. There's a jungle rhythm beating out below me, the sound of truncheons hammering on riot shields, police tradition when the streets get nasty. I'm in Angel's 8, above what will doubtless be called the Transient Riot. History's only written by the winners, after all. And if the cops want it called the Transient Riot, then that's how it'll be. Because there's going to be transient blood all over this place. And you know something? It's not their fault. It's not the Transient's fault, not not the police's fault. Oh, sure, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Spider is typing, the strippers are watching Spellbound, Royce is selling newsfeed rights to everything Spider is seeing and writing. Could somebody fish me a cigarette out of my jacket pocket, Spider says. He's too busy typing to reach for his own pocket. Oh, shit. Okay, who wants to touch the fuckhead? Now, this sequence is really good. This is Spider's narration over the events of the riot interspersed with Royce and with the stripper's reaction to Spider, and it's it's incredibly propulsive. It's very dramatically telling us about the hell that's going on below in the riot. This is really, I think, selling the idea that gonzo journalism, or just journalism in general, is a thing you can write a comic book about. Can be a subject of an exciting book. Right. The one glaring fly I see in this sequence is that Spider concludes Civic Center bribed transients to start the riot so they'd have an excuse to crack down, because he saw two men in suits. He's betting a lot on that deductive leap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. 
I guess they were human, and he said before he was the only human in the area. These people are bleeding down there for a scam. It's a show of power. How dare anybody ignore the authority of Civic Center? How dare a bunch of freaks try and think for themselves? So let's go out and stomp on children, lunatics and incompetents, because it makes our balls feel big. I can see a blatantly unarmed transient man with half his face hanging off, and three cops working him over anyway. One of them is groping his own erection. I'm sorry, is that too harsh an observation for you? Does that sound too much like the truth? Fuck you. If anyone in this shithole city gave two tugs of a dead dog's cock about truth, this wouldn't be happening. We see city folk watching the feeds in horror. I wouldn't be surrounded up here by the people who have to live and work here, weeping openly. And indeed, as he says that, we see Channon crying. He goes on to say that the people reading this news with horror earned it with their silence. Your boss does what he likes. The asshole at the toll booth, the bouncer at your local bar, the security guy who frisks you at the clinic. The papers and feed sites that lie to you for the hell of it. And as he's saying this, we get little snippets of art from previous issues. Right, he is listing people in authority who have irritated him in the last few days, and we're seeing them as he describes them. You must like it when people in authority they never earned lie to you. The government calls Royce to shut down the feed, but he cites an amendment at them. Maybe the First Amendment? <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. This being some kind of future America, probably? We don't know which amendments they have and what they're numbered. <laughs> right. Down on the street, a policeman in riot gear gets a call, and then he turns and walks away. Fuckhead! Fuckhead! Huh? What? The cops. They're going. You say cops leaving a stomp of their own accord and you call me a fuckhead? Christ, you're right. There's cops double-timing it up Cranberry, not laying cover fire. Fuck me, they're really going. He sits down in the upraised hand of a giant neon stripper on the front of the building. I am so tired. Shannon holds up the typewriter. Royce is talking through it. He reveals that he sold the column to SPKF and it's running everywhere. No one else could get a reporter in, Spider. You were it. You're famous again, man. No! Fucking no! I don't want to be famous again! Hey, get some perspective. I've just made you thousands of dollars, Spider. You miserable, toad-screwing, shit-sucking, father-raping, grandmother's corpse-fucking, ass-tick-infested, monkey-cum-drinking... How many thousands? <laughs> so it turns out that Civic Center got calls from lots of people who heard about the riot from Spider's column. That's why they pulled out. Fred, we learn, was found huddling in a bar with a 13-year-old girl with no clothes on. So that's the end of him. It won't be. And as Spider walks happily down the streets of the city, a cop car pulls up. The cops don't say a word as they beat the shit out of Spider. And then once he's thoroughly worked over... One of them says, Fuck with us ever again. You go home in a bag. Yep, they pile back in the car and leave. Spider pulls his bruised, broken body off the ground and laughs maniacally. <laughs> I'm here to stay. Shoot me and I'll spit your goddamn bullets back in your face. I'm Spider Jerusalem and fuck all of you. And that's the end of the issue. So they're really portraying journalism as making a difference here. Spider is the one who stopped the riot by reporting on it. Yes, that's right. By revealing the truth, or at least the truth as he sees it. Yeah, as a thesis statement for the comic, these three issues were pretty good. Spider himself is still something of a problem to me. Mm-hmm. We've talked about his ultra-violence. At times, to me, he comes off as the worst kind of cynic, a 
whiny, self-obsessed baby who thinks being smart or jaded enough to say life's tough justifies making it harder on everyone else. I agree. <laughs> the bigger problem, perhaps, is with his moral authority. Okay, he saved lives in the riot, but we also saw him running somebody over with his car on the way there. Well, we saw him about to run somebody over with his car. I think that was just sort of a, you know, bad driving people jumping out of the way at the last second sort of montage. We're not supposed to take that he's actually killed anybody, just... I didn't think so. Although, you know, he kills people all the time. <laughs> he apparently killed a lot of people in Prague. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly it. Like, it's good that he saved lives. It's weird where we're supposed to get his moral authority when he seems to have no problem murdering bystanders. He's always exhorting everyone to get off their asses and fix the world, but it's unclear what he thinks the problem is, since people randomly getting murdered, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I think I think Ellis's position here is that it's not the loss of life that's a problem. That's just a fact of life, is that people die randomly and horribly all the time. The problem that Spider is the only one bold enough to take on is that the powerful are maintaining their power okay. by lying to everyone else. Okay. That's right. There's a joke about it a couple of pages later. It occurred to me when I was accidentally running people over in my beautiful car. <laughs> I don't know if he actually killed anybody on his way to the riot, but yeah. Yeah. His ultraviolence and callousness sometimes undermines his point. Although I, I get what you're saying, too, that he's not, he's not neutral good. He's chaotic neutral. <laughs> right. It's not evil that he has a problem with its authority. Yeah. So I have to say that despite all the worries that I had on the first issue about, uh, you know, the transients being a metaphor for trans people okay. and the whole story arc being transphobic, A, it ended up being more sympathetic to them than I thought, and B, they weren't really treated as an analog for trans people all that much. There were a couple of insensitive moments, like the body perverts thing. Right. But for the most part, their role in the story is sort of failed, naive, half-hearted revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Not, um... Mockably not... bizarre extremists? <laughs> not an actually oppressed group. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, we get the impression that uh, the reason that they're seceding is Fred. That they could live in the city. Although, on the other hand, Fred says that the cops pushed them into Angel's 8 so that they could crush them all in one place. And the cops certainly are evil. Yeah. But yeah, like, Fred kickstarted the whole thing because he wanted the pussy that comes with being a revolutionary leader. Right. See, I agree that it, brutalizing and killing the transients is portrayed as unambiguously wrong. There is kind of maybe a deeper issue with the way they are treated, to me. Um, and the way that people, the way that sort of transhumanist characters are treated in general in this series. And that's something we'll come back to over and over, I'm sure. I'll give Alice the credit to assume that this isn't intended as, like, slippery slopeism. Okay. You know, if we... If we let people have tattoos, next thing we know, they'll be <laughs> trading out their DNA for alien DNA. Right. But there is kind of a deep contempt for the idea of identity and the right to express it. Hmm. Spider seems to think it's naive at best to, you know... To think that expressing who you are is something you do. Well, Spider's covered with tattoos and dresses very distinctively. So I'm not sure that he or Ellis are against self-expression per se. But maybe caring what other people think about you or spending all your time 
preoccupied with what other people think about you is the problem. Well, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think maybe if Spider put it into words, Mm -hmm. it would be something along the lines of, so you're expressing your identity and expecting anybody to care? Nobody cares about anybody, ever. Right. The other thing is, they're, they're portrayed as a bunch of hapless assholes, because everybody in the comic who's not Spider-Jerusalem is portrayed as a hapless asshole. <laughs> I think the strippers, ironically, are the closest thing we get to a viewer surrogate. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. They're not hapless assholes. And they, they know Spider for what he is, which is a fuckhead. <laughs> a fuckhead who might be momentarily interesting and have some interesting perspectives. But a fuckhead, nonetheless. <laughs> Well, I think that's right. Whatever he whatever he does right in these issues, he is certainly also a fuckhead. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he can rise above that and still make a difference in the world. <laughs> right. So after one story arc, what do you think of Transmetropolitan? I love the art. I love the world. Mm-hmm. I even love a lot... A, a lot of what comes out of Spider's mouth is really entertaining to read. Okay, yeah. Even he has a way with words. Right. Even if at the same time you're thinking, okay, this guy is a cynical narcissist who just wants to make me listen to stories about how awesome he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I said that Spider was a problem for me at this point, and one, one hopes that he will get better. Yeah. I don't remember if I mentioned last time the idea of, like, Spider being kind of an unleashed id. Uh, how you wish you could be a dick to everybody fantasy. No, I think you did. Okay. <laughs> I think you mentioned it. I'm not sure if you mentioned it on the air. Okay. But yeah. I do wish that, like, again, with the everyone else, everyone but him is a hapless asshole, I wish that we had a transient character who was sympathetic for some reason other than just that they're you know, pathetic and in danger. Well, no, that's right. That's right. Because we're not getting any identification with or engagement with the transients. We're pitying them. Right. Right. We pity them. The only one who's halfway competent isn't that competent and is not sympathetic. You know? It would be nice to see, like, a sort of principled, level-headed, actual revolutionary. You know, a person of, of principle who's being dragged down by the sort of the sort of phonyism of this movement. Right, right. Yeah, and by contrast that would reveal Fred as more of a charlatan. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Whatever a Spider Can, in which we list the least plausible skills possessed by Spider Jerusalem in any issue of Transmetropolitan. Well, I think for me it's got to be the fact that he sort of bullied and fast-talked his way past a strip club bouncer. <laughs> Which is not a task that is possible in the real world. <laughs> yeah, there's the fact that he climbs off the roof of the strip club onto the neon sign effortlessly and for no actual reason. <laughs> but I think maybe we have to also call out convincing a cat he's just met to be on a phone receiver. <laughs> oh, you know, I think it's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that it for Transmetropolitan 2 and 3? Yeah, I think we can move on. Uh, we've got a sort of 100th episode celebration here. Welcome to our spectacular. Um, we have both assembled our top five issues that we have covered in the last 100 episodes. That's right, it's been a lot of issues. Some quite memorable, some not so memorable, some memorable for the wrong reasons. But we're going to talk about the ones we liked the most now. Do you want to go first? All right, starting off my list number five. 
Preacher number 10, How I Learned to Love the Lord. Okay, tell us why. This is the most dramatic leg of the All in the Family story arc, which is crushing and sublime and beautiful and one of the best story arcs in Preacher. And this one ends with one of the great cliffhangers of the series, Tulip getting her head blown off. This is Yeah, this is the issue that ends with Tulip getting shot in the face. Yeah, which... That's probably why it's at the bottom of the list, is that it damselizes Tulip, who's a great badass character. But still, one of the most powerful issues in that series. Yeah, it's so emotional that I, I think it kind of gets away with it. My number five was Preacher number one, The Time of the Preacher. Okay. Just a great introduction to the world, and the art style, and the characters, and the sort of... Uh, the way people talk, mm-hmm. you know... This is a double-sized, giant comic book, mm-hmm. and it's just a terrific read, and it will instantly hook anyone. If you've never read Preacher, I defy you to read Preacher number one and not want to read the whole series. Fair. <laughs> and it's got events going on at all kinds of scales, from Tulip bumming a car to get away from a failed hit, to angels debating what to do about the creature that just escaped heaven. Right. And all of it told like between these characters in a diner, like it's just a story you tell your friends. Yeah, it's a dope comic book. Number four on my list, Sandman number 40, The Parliament of Rooks. Okay. This is a story in which several of the minor dream characters from the dreaming get together and tell stories to each other. We hear some great stories. The characters are fun and fascinating. The art is light and quirky and makes these characters memorable and also feel real. Yeah, it it imparts a lot of character to the characters. Mm Mm-hmm. The way that they're sort of peculiarly drawn. And it's about the joy of storytelling, in a way, which I think is the the sort of central tenet of Sandman. Exactly. My number four was Hellblazer number 45, The Sting. Oh! <laughs> this is the issue where John Constantine tricks the first three of the Fallen into restoring him, curing his cancer... Not letting him die, not killing him for his insolence, and then he gives them the finger for their trouble. <laughs> yeah, this is that was like the first issue that we saw, honestly, in 40 issues that really sold Magical Con Man and why Constantine is a great character. Yeah. What was your number three? My number three was Hellblazer number 45, Dangerous Habits Part 5, The Sting. <laughs> Fuck, really? Yes. Back to you. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, My number three, Preacher number 12, Until the End of the World. Okay, Um, yeah. Jesse and Tulip are reunited at the end of the Angelville story arc. They almost lost each other, but they get each other back, and they kill the fuck out of Jesse's evil family. (laughs) Yeah, some of the most satisfying ass-kickings in Preacher. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, my number two, Preacher number 50, The Land of Bad Things. This is the second of the Vietnam flashback issues in Preacher, and for my money, it's considerably more poignant. The first one, Texas and the Spaceman, kind of got into fun Garth Ennis havoc towards the end when they decided to frag their commanding officer. Right. Still, this is a really powerful issue in which Texas and the Spaceman have to make their way back to base, injured, in the dark, outnumbered and it has the great moment where i believe it's spaceman says if the world's as bad as all that then just let me die here and after a long beat texas says it ain't 
Yeah. Oh, man. Such a great moment. My number two was Sandman special number one, The Song of Orpheus. Ooh, okay. Again, this is a fatty. This is a big old comic book. It's like 65 pages or something. It's huge. And you get the story of Sandman, Morpheus's son Orpheus, and how he comes this close to happiness and the fates won't let him have it, and he destroys himself in his quest to regain it. Mm -hmm. And Morpheus lets him die. Yeah, um, really great job of recontextualizing a classic story. Right, you're getting a lot of stuff that's already from Greek mythology, and I think that's one of the cool things about it, too, is that you have this whole cast of mythological characters that you get to look in on and that play various parts. Especially the part where Orpheus talks to Hades and Persephone in hell is just... The art uh, yeah. is fucking mind-bogglingly good. Yeah. What was your number one? This is going to be a controversial choice, I think. I think we disagreed on this comic when we read it. My number one... Sandman number 50, Ramadan. Okay. It's got wonderful storybook art by P. Craig Russell. It's probably the most direct and convincing take on what stories are and why stories are valuable in an entire series about that. It really feels like an old fairy tale that Neil Gaiman somehow found that nobody else had ever seen. Yeah, as I remember, this was an extra size issue too. I think it is. It was like double-sized or something. And I remember being on the fence about it. I think that it's a good story, and I kind of like the, the weird, interesting nature of the deal that the Caliph makes with Morpheus, but I thought the issue was too long, and I wasn't 100% sold on everything that it, you know, sort of filled time with. So right. yeah, a good issue, but not on my list. Fair enough. By the way, you I saw that retweet that you did of that person who had the Sandman and Death statues. And yeah. I was like, oh my god, he's putting the orb in his cloak from Ramadan. It's that moment. Right. <laughs> I did not pick up on that until <laughs> until you reminded me just now, but you're right. What's uh, your number one? I'm sure this will be to the surprise of no one. Hellblazer number 42, A Drop of the Hard Stuff. The first appearance of the first of the Fallen. The last appearance of Brandon Flynn. <laughs> John shares a night of heavy drinking with one of his old friends and then, through some quick thinking, manages to save his soul from the devil. Yeah, drinks the devil under the table in a manner of speaking. Yeah, just, <laughs> just a perfect comic book and encapsulates everything you love about a Hellblazer. Yeah, I will actually confess that uh, it saved me trouble picking which issue of Dangerous Habits needed to be on my list because I knew you were going to pick that one. <laughs> yeah, well, I had two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did, yeah. Uh, also, Dangerous Habits Part 6 is fucking great. Yeah, so there's that. It was really good, too. Well, that is it. Write in to us, vertiguys at gmail.com. Let us know what your top five issues are of the ones that we've discussed so far, or any issues that you're looking forward to us covering. You can also get at us on Twitter, at vertiguys. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, my show, so I am going to indulge myself here and read the rest of my honorable mentions, because these are all comic books that you should find and read. Okay. Sandman number four, A Hope in Hell. Sandman number eight, The Sound of Her Wings. Number 13, Men of Good Fortune. Number 18, Dream of Thousand Cats. 
Number 24, I don't remember the specific title of this one, but it's the one where they have that long conversation about why Lucifer's quitting the job. Sandman number 31, four Septembers into January, when we meet Emperor Norton. Sandman number 48, Brief Lives Part 8, the long conversation at the dinner table between Dream Delirium and Destruction. Hellblazer Annual number 1, The Bloody Saint, a really unique standalone story about Constantine's fairly evil ancestor. Uh, Hellblazer number 49, Lord of the Dance. There are, a oh, lot of, yeah. there are a lot of good drunken times issues in Hellblazer, and this is the best one. Yeah. Preacher number 45, White Mischief, in which Jesse kicks the crap out of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Preacher number 51, honorable mention for the fact that Tulip comes to her senses, walks away from Cassidy, and when necessary, shoots him in the chest with a fucking deagle. And Preacher number 66, which is a beautiful wrap-up to the story and has gorgeous fucking art. Yeah, a lot of those would be on my honorable mentions list as well. I didn't actually bother to assemble an honorable mentions list. Well, I didn't assemble an honorable mentions list so much as that's the uncut down version of my top five. Right, you started by assembling a list. But yeah, I didn't look up issue numbers for the ones that weren't on my list. Was kind of what I mean by I didn't assemble an honorable mentions. But yeah, the issue where Jesse beats the crap out of the Ku Klux Klan would totally be on my list. I would add... The issue from World's End in Sadman, the one that's kind of less concerned with the story and more concerned with them hanging out in the tavern and then eventually, like, seeing this big celestial funeral procession yeah, go the by. Yeah, funeral in the sky. That's a great issue. Also, Sandman number one. Yeah, really, Sleep of the Just. Yeah, Sleep of the Just is... That was my sixth one. That's the issue that was on the early version of my list and got booted for something else. But it is a terrific comic book. It's epic and sad and has a little bit of very satisfying revenge in it. And it's just this it's just this long, beautiful story that spans like 80 years and is only the beginning of our saga. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for sticking with us for 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. Yeah, we have just covered around 10, maybe 9 of the best comics that we read out of at least 200. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, looking forward to covering more. We won't be seeing you again until the new year, but our next episode, for what it's worth, is Lucifer, Born with the Dead. Vertigais is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigais.blueberry.com. That's where the blog posts that we write for every episode go up and they have background information and nerdy pedantics (laughs) and some cool art sometimes yeah as mentioned you can get in touch with us vertiguys at gmail.com eric's at vertiguys i'm at blank cast sean and we have a facebook page facebook.com slash vertiguys we'd love to hear from you send us your questions your concerns comics you love yeah leave us ratings and reviews recommend us to people Listen, we want all the moms this episode. So until we come back for 2020, that's your New Year's resolution. We're going to get all the moms on this podcast. If your mom is not listening to our podcast, you need to put her on the show. You need to take her phone. You need to do what you need to do. But uh, when when we reconvene in 2020, all the moms. I have been so far unable to install Stitcher on my mom's cell phone. I mean, our mom can't listen to this show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, Yeah, have a happy new year. Let me tell you now when I come home feeling tired and
go up where the air is fresh and sweet. On the roof, I get away from the hustling crowd and all that rat race noise down in the She's wearing a very impractical outfit for the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, but she's not supposed to be wearing... Like, that's like saying that you're wearing an impractical outfit for the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> <laughs> like, you didn't know that it was going to happen. She's not, like, supposedly in her cop gear. She's that's wearing, a good point. She's wearing what she's wearing when it happens. An impractical outfit for the zombie apocalypse. Christ, people. I think if you read her diary at the beginning of the game, she's trapped in her apartment for like six days, you know, between the beginning of the zombie apocalypse and trying to escape the city. So she has access to her clothes. Maybe they all, maybe they're all dirty. With the zombie apocalypse, there wasn't any water. She couldn't do any electricity. She couldn't do laundry. Yeah, exactly. She she couldn't do any electricity is what I said. That doesn't make sense, though. (laughs) She couldn't do laundry. There was either no water or no electricity. Anyway, she couldn't do laundry. clean. Yeah, she she couldn't do laundry, and she didn't want to wear anything dirty, and the tube top was the last thing that she had. That's probably it. Yeah, that must be what happened. Somebody gave me their Disney Plus login. Okay. I haven't really started using it that much yet. I haven't really gotten into The Mandalorian or anything. But two things I was excited to note that they have. Well, three things. I can finally see Toy Story 2, which means I can finally see Toy Story 3. Yeah, okay. Uh, Both of which it has. It has The Muppets, which is the sitcom that takes place behind the scenes at a late night talk show hosted by Miss Piggy. Yeah. The kind of weirdly adult sitcom that they made for only one season. Yeah. Which I loved and was, was almost universally reviled. So there's that. And they have Gargoyles. Ah, I didn't know that gargoyles would be something you were excited about. But then you did text me about rodeo burgers the other day, so now I guess you're into the two things that I was into in 1997 that nobody else in the world likes. (laughs) Well, lots of people like gargoyles, and apparently lots of people like rodeo burgers, too, because they've never come off the menu. Yeah. That brings us full circle, because aren't rodeo burgers a Toy Story tie-in? They're a small soldier's tie-in. Oh. Well, <laughs> the less said about that, the better. 